we are especially thrilled today to have my friend Anna Galladay with us all the way from the foreign country of Chattanooga, another time zone where the days last longer into the evening than here. Anna's uh, a profoundly wonderful person. Many of you here, a lot of folk are here because of her this morning, even some up from Chattanooga. Um, by way of introduction, there's a lot I could say about her. She lives with her husband in Chattanooga. He's a veterinarian there. They moved here, what, seven years ago? Ten years ago from Virginia. A cradle, United Methodist. Um, Anna left the corporate world and a very successful life in the corporate world and entered ministry ordained through the church that she had been a part of her entire life and in her heart and mind is still a part of. Um, this church is a United Methodist Church from 1882 to 2015. This was West Nashville United Methodist Church. The United Methodist Church is one of the denominations that if I were not interdenominational and had not left my own denomination, their open hearts, open doors, and open minds would have been a place for a Wesleyan background person like me to have landed. And I considered it quite often. It is a wonderful denomination that is right now in the throes of deep discernment. And those of you that come from a Methodist background know just how important a moment this is in United Methodist history. And Anna made the decision as an ordained cleric, an ordained minister there, pastoring a wonderful church in Chattanooga to marry a same-gender, same-sex couple. And ultimately, those of you from a United Methodist background knows that it really depends on kind of the area. I was just in California, and a bishop there, not a district superintendent, a bishop there is a partnered lesbian woman. So they're really in the throes of a lot right now, but I applaud Anna in one of our more conservative districts for following her heart, doing the right thing, it cost her her ordination, at least that piece of paper that is called ordination. We all know it did not cost her ordination with God. And someone was talking about Anna to me the other day, and they said that it was sad that she had lost her ministry. I said, are you kidding me? She may have just found her ministry. Um, I, I, she's watching just as we are for how things will turn out. But for a person to step out in integrity and do what she did to the cost of losing the church that she was appointed to, a church of her heart, a group of people who love her. I just can't say enough. And beyond all that, she's just a splendid, beautiful person. And we are especially honored today to have Reverend Anna Gulladay. It won't be the last time to have her here to minister to us. Will you give her a good, warm grace point? Welcome. Thanks, Dan. You always get a little nervous when your friends introduce you, right? Um, so Stan told you a, a, a good part of my story. Um, there are lots of nuances and ins and outs to it. But before I kind of walk us into the word that I want to share with you today. I want to just add a couple more things to that story to give you a little bit of context as to how I found myself um, in the situation that I now find myself. Um, I was a part of a team of folks who revitalized the United Methodist Church in the urban center of Chattanooga. Uh, this was a church that was very much like this church um, in its last days. There were a dozen or so people left there. 
Um, it was really close to being next on the list in the Holston Conference to being closed. And yet it was in this eclectic and amazing neighborhood where we knew that something needed to happen in this building. We just didn't know what. And when, when a group of us kind of showed up to start what we term as revitalization, quite frankly, what it ended up looking like was the replanting of a United Methodist Church in this building. Um, we knew from the very beginning, without question and without apology, that we would be a reconciling and an open and affirming congregation. Um, one of the, the leaders in this revitalization effort and, and who would come to be our lead pastor for the first few years um, is an openly gay a man who uh, had a committed partnership and, and was in this partnership and had been for, for many years. Um, he was not, and nor did he intend to seek ordination, but was given kind of the a, approval and ability to lead this church. Um, we were all laity, unpaid laity, kind of restarting, releading this church, and did that for many years um, as, we, as we got going. And so we were really, we, I mean, it didn't even cross our minds to not be a congregation that was affirming and inclusive of all. Um, it, it, we, we were not always looked upon fondly by the, the city of Chattanooga. Um, there were folks that gave us a hard time a lot. Thankfully, we were doing some really cool and innovative ministry, so they were, um, they tended to be more engaged in the work we were doing than they were in the naysaying of, of who we were. Um, but long and short, we became a, a congregation that was about 50% LGBTQ, 50% straight ally, and operated in that fashion for, for several years. And when I was appointed as the pastor of the church, um, I... I came at pastoral ministry from, a, from an understanding of the pastors that I had been raised by, um, who were my pastors in all ways, at all times, 365 days a year, from the time that they were put in place in my congregation until the time that we loved them on their way to their next appointment. And, and what that meant was that I then also took on this moniker of being a pastor in all ways at all times. These people are people that I love desperately, that I engaged with in ways that um, in some, sometimes went beyond pastoral ministry, but I was always deeply involved in their lives and in the ways in which they went about their work. And I had a really hard time being the pastor of a congregation where I was encouraged, and quite frankly, for those of us that are part of denominational politics, encouraged by a set of metrics, often which follow money, to baptize them and bring them into membership and in, engage with them in, in small group ministry and, and have them grow in the life of the church and be with them at their bedside when they were ill or at their parents' bedside as they, as they exited this life and, and be with them in all ways at all times except for one day 
out of one year out of their entire lives. And that was the day that they decided that they were going to join in marriage with the person that they had decided they wanted to spend their life with. And I said, I just can't do that. I can't be someone who is a pastor in all ways except that way. And so when I chose to marry um, this couple, um, it, was, it was understanding that I, I understood I was breaking a rule. I also say to people all the time, I broke a rule, but I didn't do anything wrong. And those are two very different things. And I was fired for breaking a rule. And I was applauded for not doing anything wrong. And this congregation has, um, I, I was fired February 28th of this year. So I've lived with kind of this nine months of um, wilderness for me. Um, I left this very successful and quite lucrative profession to go into ministry and I am rediscovering what that looks like for me. Um, but what I can tell you is that every Sunday that I am in Chattanooga, which unfortunately aren't that many anymore, but every Sunday that I'm in town, I show up at that church. I sit in the pews with the people that I was asked to walk away from by my denomination, who's, you know, my bishop is way up in Knoxville. I sit alongside them. I am part of the congregation. I sing and I lament and I cry and I praise alongside them. And people ask me all the time, like, how can you do that? How can you be engaged in this work in a way that's so painful? And my answer is that I begged them not to leave. I knew that this would be one more pain in their long list of pain that the church has caused against them. And I begged them not to leave, but I knew if I was going to ask them to stand in the middle of this storm, that I had to model for them what that looked like. And it sucks. It's hard every Sunday to get up and walk into this congregation knowing that where I want to be and the role that I want to be fulfilling is not a role that's open to me. And yet, every Sunday I leave knowing that those, my queer kin that are still there, are there partially because I said I would still be there too. And so as we move into this space of worship and as we are in this beautiful sanctuary, I mean, I'm just in awe of what has been done in this congregation and in this space. It's, it really hearkens to what I know to be my Wesleyan roots, where John, was, John and his brother Charles were out preaching and, and inviting in the less thans from the community knowing all the while that they were in no way less than in the eyes of God. That God saw them exactly to be who they were, and God honors them in that way at all times, in all ways. And so we're going to talk a little bit, about, a little bit today about how God sees us, about how God engages us in this work, but especially 
how God knows and sees the people we are and loves us in that most perfect way. And so as you hear my story and as I've shared with you my heart, I hope that you're mindful not just of how I believe God still sees me in this role as pastor, in this role as minister, but most importantly today, how God sees you. Will you pray with me? God, may the words that come from my mouth and the feeling and love that I have in my heart be a perfect display of the love that you have for all of us. May it please you. May it make you smile. And may you be here with us in all ways. Amen. So I remember being in the 11th grade, feeling super conscientious about where I fit into life in high school. Many of you who remember your high school days or have chosen to very intentionally forget your high school days know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, you know, school was this epicenter of personality and popularity. And I was knee deep in that quagmire of expectation. And so I was in the lunchroom one day with my very best friend, and I had to go to the restroom. And the bathrooms were at the end of the lunchroom, but my friend and I sat at the other end of the lunchroom. And so uh, she agreed to go along because for some reason, women oddly go to the restroom in pairs. And as we left, I went across the, the, uh, the cafeteria to the lunchroom. My friend went with me. We, we did what we needed to do, and we, we come back out to go back and, and, and join our friends um, to finish lunch. And I leave first. And as we cross the lunchroom, things get oddly quiet, like weirdly so. And my friend is behind me this whole time, and we make it back to our table. All the while, I'm kind of wondering, what is going on with, like, the, the, the tone of this place? Like, it's just soft, and people are whispering. And as I sat down, one of my other friends says to me, Anna, you might want to untuck your skirt from your underwear. As I complied, I turned to my best friend and said, how did you not see that? Like, you were right behind me. Why didn't you tell me that I walked across the entire cafeteria with my skirt tucked in my underwear? And she looked at me, kind of feeling badly about my embarrassment, and said, I'm sorry, I, I didn't see it. She didn't see it? <laughs> So my senior year of college, I was a part of a fine arts department that had been together this whole four years. And almost all of us had kind of gone through this program together, and we're, we're, we've become friends, and we've gotten to know one another. And one night, we decided that we were going to sit in a circle and write a secret on a piece of paper. We were going to tell people something about ourselves that we never tell anyone. And then we were going to read them anonymously. And so one by one, these secrets are read out loud. And one by one, I heard pain and loneliness and hurt 
And we had lived and studied together for four years. And how could I be so unaware of all this pain in this group of people that I loved? How could I not see that? Some of you have seen the movie Crossing Arizona. And there's a scene where this anti-immigration rally takes place in a hotel ballroom. And as the speaker on stage kind of rants and raves about immigrants taking away their jobs and ruining society, the immigrant hotel workers are cleaning up and serving those in attendance. And anyone watching the scene is left asking, how can they not see the people serving them are the ones that they are railing against? How can they not see that? And so I sit in denominational meetings and conferences and hear the debate over the humanity of my LGBTQ siblings take place. Phrases like their lifestyle and their choices and abominations. And I'm left screaming, we are right here. We are serving alongside you already. How do you not see us? And so we pick up this Bible story in the middle of a many-chapter missive about a guy named Abraham and his wife named Sarah. And this story is rich with both prophetic goodness and eye-rolling humanity. But we're going to look at just a little section in the heart of this story And at this point, God has promised Abraham that his offspring will be large, that great nations will rise up because of the children that he has. And that would be great if he had children. Sarah, his wife, the poor thing, is stuck in the middle of this patriarchal culture that rewards her only for her ability to have kids. And this society that blames her entirely when children aren't conceived. And in her 90s, yes, her 90s, she is desperate. And we trust that they want to believe the story that God has told them about these children that will be coming. But it seems too hard for them to believe, and just like we are prone to do, Abraham and Sarah decide to forego listening to the promises that God has given them and take things into their own hands. And so hear now these words from the book of Genesis, chapter 16. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had not been able to bear children for him. But she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar, So Sarah said to Abraham, the Lord has prevented me from having children, so go and sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can have children for you through her. And Abraham agrees with her proposal. So Sarah, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abraham as his wife. So Abraham had sex with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarah, with contempt. And then Sarah said to Abraham, 
This is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms and now she's pregnant, but she treats me horribly. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. And Abraham replied, look, she's your servant. You deal with her however you see fit. And so Sarah began to treat Hagar so harshly that Hagar finally ran away. The Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water out in the wilderness. The angel said to her, Hagar, why have you come so far and where are you going? And she replied, I am running away from my mistress, Sarah. And the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. And then the Lord added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. But the Lord also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. And you are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. This son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. But hear this, friends. Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, El-Rohi, you are the God who sees me. Have I truly seen the one who sees me? So here we have Hagar, a pagan Egyptian slave, minding her own business, going about her daily chores, when Sarah says something that would make most of us uncomfortable. Sarah tells her to go get pregnant with her husband's child so that Sarah can claim the baby as her own. If this is biblical marriage, friends, I don't want anything to do with it. Does anybody think this is going to end well? I don't think so. So Hagar, this slave, has even less control over her life than Sarah does. And because of that, she is assigned to someone else's story in a lead role. Hagar gets pregnant as instructed, which ticks Sarah off as predicted. Now, we have the luxury to read this as just a story. I mean, it happened to people we don't know. It took place thousands of years ago. But the story of Hagar and Sarah is still being played out today, all over the world. When I think of Sarah and Abraham... I hear the cry of people who are trying to hide a part of their family story, as if God were only capable of working through those who are perfect. I think of Hagar when I hear of the 4.5 million people around the world who are still being trafficked and, as slaves and, and sex slaves in this country and in others, I mean, right up and down our corridor of highways here in Tennessee. I think of Hagar when I stood at the foot of the Lee statue in Charlottesville and had white nationalists berate me as a woman, spit on me as a servant of God, and chant their missives solely to their fear 
about the browning of our country. I think of Hagar and Ishmael when I see reports of this beautiful group of brave humans who are walking towards our border because the violence in theirs has become too dangerous for them to remain and raise their families. And I think of Hagar when my queer friends are shunned by their kin because of who they are, when they are banished into the desert with their unborn selfness and are unsure if they will hear the voice of God in their wilderness. The Lord warned prophets that it would be like this. I mean, Jesus spoke to the people in parables for this very reason. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. There's something really powerful, friends, in really seeing. In the moment we begin to perceive, we say, my eyes were opened, as if we'd been walking around blind before. When the Apostle Paul began to live out the light of Christ, something like scales fell off his eyes and he could see. In the same passage that Jesus was quoting, Isaiah goes on to say, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. In this practice of seeing others, I'm reminded of the story of the woman at the well. One day, Jesus is out traveling. You all know this story. He stops at a nearby well to rest. The disciples excuse themselves to go run some minor errand, and while they're away, a woman comes to draw water. In the heat of the day, it is hotter than blazes. And Jesus asks this woman for a drink, and in the ensuing conversation, he reveals to her her marital history, himself, the Messiah, and that the Spirit of God is akin to living water. And we know, Stan knows, countless sermons have been given about this passage, usually highlighting the symbolism of the living water, or the well woman's promiscuous character, Yet one detail in verse 9 often goes unmarked by casual readers. The Samaritan woman says to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Just as today's society is rife with all breeds of discrimination, so was the early world in which Jesus walked. At best, the Samaritan woman's fifth husband has treated her poorly, and they, she's now ignored by the ancient Jews. I mean, they see her coming, and they're like, eyes ahead, don't look at her, don't talk to her, don't see her. But Jesus saw her, just as Jesus sees you, in all your mess and in all your screw-uppedness. There's great power and dignity in being seen. Seeing conveys worth. It welcomes the outsider into our world. It gives them courage to speak up. And it assures them that what they have to say won't fall on deaf ears. 
It should come as no surprise that Jesus was a champion for the unseen. Now, readers of scriptures have always been drawn to the miraculous events surrounding Christ's ministry. But what we fail to realize is that the true wonder and grace of the gospel is found in moments where God acknowledged those individuals that society had chosen to ignore. Like Hagar. Like the woman at the well. But God sees them. And God's message is far different. And so I wonder today, friends, when you respond today to the God who sees you, what do you hope God sees? Now, I would like to think that I know how I'm seen. I'm a tall, white, middle-aged woman raised in the northern Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and I now am in Chattanooga, Tennessee. God sees me as someone who still makes assumptions about people based on where I was raised, unfortunately, more often than I would like to admit. I would pray, however, that God sees me as a daughter of Christ, as a pastor of the gospel of peace, that God sees that that motivates and often transforms my assumptions and previous experiences. I'm seen as a United Methodist, first by birth and now by choice, I often wonder what God sees in the mess that I have made and that we have made and that others have made of this faith tradition. I pray that I'm seen as an ally and an accomplice for LGBTQ humans, that God sees me as a rejecter of systems of oppression, God sees me as a wife and a daughter and a sister and the world's greatest auntie don't even try to compete and the mama of fur babies, that God sees me as someone who relies on the writings and the teachings of the prophets that came before me when I'm overwhelmed, that God sees me as highly creative. I see myself as not worthy of the grace that I receive, but God, I know God sees me very differently. How are you seen in the eyes of God? Think hard about it. Because when you get to your lowest low, when you feel as if you have been banished into the desert, when you go to the well in the heat of the day to avoid the side eye from others, you will want to remind yourself of how you are seen. When you don't have the courage to get out of bed, much less the courage to keep doing this work, it it will be how God sees you that encourages you to keep moving. When Hagar left, was hiding from this family that she didn't believe wanted her, she was confronted by God who saw her in her truest state. What's miraculous, friends, is not that God comforts her. What's miraculous is that Hagar, a pagan slave, acknowledges who God is before her in that moment. She acknowledges that she is seen. She affirms that God has met her for the very first time in her life. And in addition to being seen, she finally sees God for all that God is. So Grace Point, as we acknowledge that we are seen, 
Let us also remind ourselves today who God is. Who the God is that sees us. A God who is love. A God who is not deaf to children's cries and is moved to tears with their suffering. A God whose law is love of neighbor, hospitality for stranger, care for the weak. A God whose touch is healing, whose gaze is compassion, whose way is loving kindness. Surprise, a God that is not male and that is not white. A God who takes no pleasure in violence. A God who is justice. A God who conceives our hearts and stirs our spirits and transforms our minds. A God who revels and revels in the joyful dance of this community and invites us to do the same. A God who breaks the heavy chains that we have placed on ourselves and ones that we have used to keep out and others down in their midst. A God who sees us. A God who sees us when we fight. A God who sees us when we love. A God who sees us when we weep. A God who sees us when we pray. A God who sees us when we do justice. And a God who sees us when we pursue peace. A God who sees. A God who sees. Let us pray. God, we are in this space where we know your eyes see us. You, amidst all of us, mingling amongst us, a part of this place, a part of this group, a part of this community, looking at us, looking upon us, seeking to have us see you. May we ever be people who not only acknowledge who you are, but acknowledge who you see in us. May we ever be those people. Amen. Amen.